Hello and welcome to the Mindset Podcast. This is your host, Alex Muir, helping you maximize your performance. And in today's episode 38, we're going to be speaking with our special guest, Steve Hafner. Steve is a decision performance specialist, the de-illusionist, and he helps leaders and professionals maximize their decision performance and effectiveness. And please welcome Steve Hafner to the podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Mindset Podcast. This is your host, Alex Muir, helping you maximize your performance. And in today's special guest series episode, we're going to be speaking with Steve Hafner. Steve Hafner is a decision performance and productivity expert. He had a corporate career spanning 30 years as a programmer, systems engineer, executive, and business analyst for companies such as EDS, Mercer, and Humana. In 2011, Steve changed directions and launched his own business as a magician and mentalist entertaining corporate and family audiences with visual and psychological illusions. Steve's variety of backgrounds, combined with insights from the fields of psychology and behavioral economics, give him a unique perspective on how the subconscious mind influences our decision-making through illusions, hidden shortcuts, and cognitive biases. As a professional speaker, Steve shares his insights with corporate and association audiences, helping them become more successful by elevating their decision performance ensuring that their decisions align with their goals and reflect their values. And please welcome Steve Hafner to the podcast. Steve, pleasure to have you on the Mindset Podcast today. Super excited to have you on and to share your your story and your journey with us today. Well, thanks, Alex. It's really great to be here. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, and I first wanted to start off by uh, by answer, or, uh, asking you this first question here, Steve, is... Uh, what is decision performance and how can people enhance decision performance? Yeah. Well, decision performance is a term I made up. <laughs> so <laughs> I can I can define it as whatever I want. No, it's uh it it's it is actually a term that I coined and I um I came up with it because I had through as you said, I had I became a magician and a mentalist and in that role, I had to learn how people's minds think. And if I can understand how people's minds are working at the subconscious level, doing things that they're not even aware of, that they don't know, then that enhanced my ability to do magic and to wow them and astound them. And presumably in the, in the realm of entertainment, you know, look like I'm reading minds, etc. So I learned through that study of psychology and how the mind works that some of these subconscious things that we do, these impulses and biases and shortcuts affect people, people's decision-making. So I could take that outside of the realm of entertainment into our everyday decisions that we make at work or at home, just, you know, in life. And it's fascinating as I started to study some of those fields like behavioral economics to discover just how irrational many of our decisions are and how we have these influences that are based in what I call the lizard brain. And we can talk about that a little bit later, but primitive in the primitive part of our brain that developed millions of years ago when we were out in the wild trying not to get eaten. <laughs> so we have these, these influences and, and these preferences that, that developed, you know, Millions of years ago, and they're at the subconscious level, so we don't know how they are affecting us, but they make us make decisions that are sometimes counter to our own best interests. So 
to answer your question, decision performance is the degree to which our decisions help us to achieve our goals and align with and reflect our values. So that's it. So the better you are at decision performance, <clears throat> the more you can enhance that performance, then the more you are going to be able to reach your goals, reach your objectives, and live in accordance with your values. And, and the overall effect of that is it's going to make you happier because you're going to be making better decisions and behaving in ways that are more in line with your core, your core beliefs and the core things that, that you want to achieve in your life. Wow, that's incredible because all of us can use, um, you know, better decision making skills and, and, you know, ways to improve our decision making. And what are some practices or principles and ways in which we can do that? Yeah, well, I like to use the term metacognition. So that basically means thinking about thinking. And any way that we can learn more about how our mind works, then the better chance we have of being able to make it work uh, in, in ways that, that serve us the best. So there's, uh, there are many different types of fields or domains that fall under the category of metacognition. Um, and so you can look at mindfulness. Um, there's, a, if you study domains that anything that has to do with the mind, like psychology or um, behavioral economics or even neuroscience. And you don't have to become a neuroscientist or a psychologist, yeah. you know, to, to, um, take ad advantage of, of some of these things. But the more you can learn about how your mind is working and what might be influencing it, then the better chance you have of overcoming the negative influences. So I, the, the folks, the focus that I have on decision performance is how to recognize what I call our illusions. I like to use the term that I'm the de-illusionist because I used <laughs> to be an illusionist when I was a magician, a mentalist, but now I help people to uncover their own illusions. And those are, I refer to illusions as their primitive impulses. And those are the, um, those are the urges we have to act quickly to, um, to try to be safe, to, we, we tend to focus on the negative instead of the positive. And these are all things that are, you know, that are primitive come from that lizard brain. Um, there are heuristics. So these are mental shortcuts. I don't know if you've heard that word. A lot of people have never heard it before heuristics. Uh, and these are things that normally they help us because, you know, all the information that comes to us for example, uh, it, during the course of a day, we get millions of bits of information and we have to sort it out. We can't dwell and make decisions on every single piece of information that comes to us. We have to filter it. So our mind has these shortcuts that helps us to navigate the world, helps us navigate the uh, information that comes to us. Most of the time they're helpful and, and it's great. You know, it's good, good thing our brain is working that way. But there are times where these types of shortcuts don't exactly align with how we, how we try to function as 21st century humans. So, uh, so yeah, so I, I focus on these types of, um, as I said, impulses, heuristics. Another thing is the term cognitive bias, which is kind of an overall term for these subconscious, uh, interferences. 
and uh, and cognitive bias. That's that's the term that psychologists and behavioral uh, economists use um, to talk about the preferences that we have. So so th there are <laughs> we when we make decisions, we've got these things going on. We've got these things that we prefer um, that at the subconscious level that come into play when we're trying to make decisions that don't align with our goals or values at all. And they can lead us astray and make us make poor suboptimal decisions, um, you know, when we're trying to do what's best for us and reach our goals and reflect our values. So uh, let's say I can give you an example from the realm of, let's say, uh, human resources. So Malcolm Gladwell, you may be familiar with him. In his oh, book, yeah. Yeah, yeah. In, in his book, Blink, he talked about how he did a survey of CEOs. And he found that of, I think he surveyed half the Fortune 500 companies. And he found that of male CEOs compared, compared to males in the general population, they averaged three inches taller than males in the general population. Hmm. So what, yeah, so what does that tell us? Well, it must mean that tall people make better leaders. Yes, I'm 6'2". Yes. <laughs> No, that's not what it means, of course. But what it means is that there's a subconscious bias where we equate physical stature with leadership skills, with the ability to be a leader. Now, where does that come from? Well, this goes back to that concept of the lizard brain. So this is a part of the brain developed millions of years ago with one primary purpose, to keep us safe and keep us alive so we don't get eaten in the wild. So that's its purpose. So we have all, all of these uh, impulses that that reflect that, you know, going back way back in our ancient history, our ancient development. So if you think about in the animal kingdom, because this part of the brain exists, you know, that's why they call it the reptilian brain, actually. Um, they exist in small animals as well. If you think of a pack of animals or a group of animals, which one is usually the leader? Well, it's... The biggest one, right? Most of the time, you know, it's the the biggest, strongest member of the group who becomes the leader. Well, we still have apparently we still have a vestige of that in our our lizard brain where we equate leadership with physical stature, and that can account for why we hire people for leadership positions more often taller people. Now, of course, it's a generalization. You know, you don't always hire. Tall people, you know, they're not all the, the leaders, but it's a subconscious bias that we have. And if we're making hiring decisions based on something like height, then we're probably not making the best decision possible, right? If, that, if that's coming into our decision making, then that's a cognitive bias that's interfering with our ability to make the best hiring choice possible uh, or the best promotion choice or, you know, something like that. There's another interesting uh, example from the world of HR. What, what do you think has a bigger bearing on your ability to get hired for a position? Either one, your qualifications for that position, or two, your physical attractiveness. Uh, yeah, this is a very good one. Physical, attract, <laughs> uh, physical attractiveness. Yeah, yeah. It's a huge I'm, one. Yeah, they overlook right. your... A lot of times they overlook your skill set for ba based on how you look. Right. And, and they don't know they're doing it. 
I say they, uh, I should say we, because, <laughs> you know, we all have this, the lizard yep. brain, but yeah, you know, you're not even aware that you're doing it. And if somebody pointed out, well, look, you hire attractive people at a much higher rate than non-attractive people, you'd be shocked, you know, and you'd be belligerent. You'd say, no way, I don't do that, you know, because <laughs> you don't realize you're doing it because it's at the subconscious level behind or underneath our cognitive or conscious awareness. So, you know, and when I think about that, that people, that, that physical attractiveness plays such a huge role in getting hired. I wonder how I ever got hired back in the day sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, the, you made a really good point because the, how leaders, you know, a lot of people have had this previous view that taller, larger people are, are seen as leaders. And then people that uh, non-attractive versus attractive people, attractive people get hired more. So it's mm -hmm. like, it, it's, it's a very interesting, I think, I, like, I feel like it's definitely old, old adage. And I feel like we are transitioning and people are becoming, we're building a lot more self-awareness. Um, we're learning about that, that, you know, that's not the case. And, you know, it really comes down to, you know, honesty, you know, can I, can I trust you? Are you honest? Um, do you, are you going to do what you say you're going to do and, you know, are you going to show up and yeah. And all, all those things are, are really, you know, becoming more into play, but of course we still have that deep seated, um, old lizard brain, like, like you're talking about. Right. Right. And we can't, you know, we can't get rid of the lizard brain and its impulses and biases. We can't get rid of them. They're always going to be there, but by becoming more aware of what they're doing, you know, and how they are affecting us, we can sometimes overcome their ability to affect our decision and uh, our decision making. And so this is something, and what great example on that, that HR example, uh, companies tend managers, hiring managers and HR professionals tend to overemphasize the personal interview as part of the hiring process. And that allows a lot of these biases to come in, you know, especially if you think about that physical attractiveness one. And this is called the effect heuristic, by the way, when we let preferences that we have that are irrelevant to the decision we're making, such as physical mm -hmm. attractiveness and hiring for a job, when, when those come into play, that's called the effect heuristic. So it's a shortcut to help us make a decision faster is what's going on, you know, in the hidden brain. But what they can do, what you can do is, um, add, from the hiring level, if you're somebody that's involved in the hiring process, is weight the personal interview lower, for one. That's one thing you can do because most people put way too high of a uh, of a weight of importance on it as far as part of the overall hiring process. And statistics show that there's only like a 10% correlation between the personal interview and the person's ability to perform at the job well. So that's, that's one thing they can do. And another way to overcome to subconscious cognitive biases in the hiring process is to blind resumes. So you, what you do is you, you have a standard resume form that has no identity uh, characteristics on it at all. And, you know, and for, and it's the same for everybody. So when a resume comes in, you have somebody, Take it, you know, that is not the hiring manager 
take the relevant information and put it on the standard form. What you don't put on uh, there, you don't put name, you don't put gender, you don't put age, you know, you don't put any, uh, any characteristics that are not directly a qualification for that job. You don't put them on there. So then when the hiring manager sees the resume, they're not going to be affected by those things. You don't even put uh, where the person went to college because that can affect you and right. it may, you know, affect how you perceive that person. And again, it's subconscious. You're not trying to let it affect you. <laughs> so if you how, move those kind of things, yeah, you can, you can. Yeah. Keep have you ever there. seen, um, like, have you ever seen an organization that you worked with or that you've, um, you know, researched? Have, have, have you ever seen someone do a blind resume with no characteristics on it? Uh, I don't, not in my own experience at the, at the mm. companies that I worked as far, as far as I know, they didn't blind resumes. And I don't think back then, cause it's been a little while yeah. that, that that was much of a thing. But, um, but I know, you know, I know that a lot of companies are adapting that. Um, I was at a conference not too long ago where there is a company that specializes in that they specialize oh. in creating that in helping HR departments and companies and associations with their hiring process. And that is part of what they do is they blind resumes and they create a, uh, like a scorecard where there are weighted different, uh, qualifications for the job are weight weighted. And then you're given a score, you multiply it by the weight. So you can come up with a final score and then your, your, all your candidates are scored that way. And that takes more of that, of, of the, uh, irrational decision-making and biases that we have out of the process. So that's, yeah, I, I find that really interesting. Yeah. Like I, and I feel we, we might, you know, we might be seeing a lot more of that, um, during this pandemic and coming out of this pandemic, because I just had an interview with a gentleman yesterday, uh, Michael Levitt. He's the, uh, uh, chief burnout officer for breakfast leadership. And he was talking a lot about that, how, um, uh, you know, he believes that there's going to be some changes coming out of this pandemic, like, especially, you know, in HR and mm -hmm. how we run organizations and even potentially eliminating the whole, uh, industrial adage of getting in your eight hours to transition work from like industrialized to project-based. As long as you, as long as you perform and you get done when you need to get done, like taking out those confines around time and, uh, yeah, getting in your, getting in that eight, that eight hours. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Well, yeah, the pandemic has, you know, it's caused so much of disruption yeah. basically across all industries and our, our brain, our lizard brain doesn't like disruption. No, not <laughs> it at all. It doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't like change. It likes things to stay the way they are. Yeah. And this is. So this is something called the status quo bias. And this is a big one that I talk about in my speaking programs is our preference for keeping things the way they are. And that's a safety thing. Because if you think about, um, you know, in the wild, taking that well-worn path to the river, well, that's much safer because we know what the potential threats are there, somewhere we've been before. Then if you go somewhere else, somewhere where you've never been, there could be, you know, scary monsters out there, potential threats. <laughs> and the same thing, you know, this comes to tribalism too, um, you know, which has the, the 
basis of racism comes from our desire to stay with people we are familiar with, you know, and, and if we don't know if we have uncertainty, then we look for people who are similar to us. So even though we're not, you know, you might not be a, a blatantly racist, you're, you know, you do have a tendency at when you have uncertainty to want to stick with people who look like you think like you, um, you know, that, that you're more familiar with because back in the, you know, the days out on the Savannah, it was safer to stay with the group that you knew. So, um, so yeah, I strayed a little bit, but I was talking about disruption and that, how that, how, how we don't like that change. If we want to stay in the status quo and we have a lot of internal resistance to keep us from wanting to stretch, to grow, to be creative, <laughs> to do things outside the norm. Um, and that, that's a problem because that can keep us from, that, that makes us overly risk averse. You know, we, we, we don't do things, you know, and everybody has their own tolerance for risk, but we don't, we don't do that. We don't grow. We don't learn because, um, we don't want to, we don't want to take a risk of, of doing something new because something bad might happen to us. Right. So, so that all goes back to the, uh, the lizard brain and the, and the desire to keep us safe so that we can survive and live long enough to pass our DNA on to future generations. <laughs> That's yeah, what it's, it's all about. <laughs> it's, it's that defense mechanism that uh, our fear, right? It, once yeah. that fear starts coming into play, it, it acts as a mental blockage. Um, and, and I like how you talked about like, you know, people's own, like we all have our own personal narratives, right? Mm -hmm. But it's a matter of changing those personal narratives and getting out of that. Um, you know, like when you feel like you're in that, uh, the fear is starting to creep in, knowing how to like being aware that it's there, but not, not letting it take over your decision making and going from a logical decision to an illogical decision, but just because you're afraid. Yeah. Yes. And that's, and, and you're speaking a little bit towards the concept of emotional intelligence, so yeah. I don't know. I don't know if you've had any guests on that talk about emotional intelligence, you know, on your show, but uh it's it's being aware of your emotions and of other people. You know, and have having a high EQ, emotional quotient, it's like, it's like your IQ except it's, you know, your ability to to understand and recognize and successfully handle um your emotion. And that's emotion is something, you know, that's a big lizard brain thing too because if it can if it can get us to feel emotion, strong emotion, then we're going to act quicker. And that's what it wants. It wants us to act fast. Cause in the wild, if you don't act fast, you are going to get eaten. You're, you're you're not gonna, <laughs> yeah. You're not going to last very long. So, um, so you need to act quickly. That's why when you walk out your front door and there's a squirrel in your yard, boom, it runs up the tree. It doesn't know if you're a threat or not. Right. But if yeah, it moves, yeah. it moves quickly and that's a good decision for it because it will live to, you know, live another day, whether you're a threat or not. Um, and it doesn't know, but it doesn't care because, uh, if, if there's a chance that you could be a threat, then it's going to try to avoid you and it's going to, you know, act, act very quickly. So that's, yeah. So that's, a, that's where that comes from. But, you know, as 21st century humans where we have bigger, higher level goals that we want to achieve besides just not getting killed, because, you know, the chance of us getting, <laughs> getting eaten or, you know, get, getting killed is much smaller than it was back, back in the day when in the harsh environments of the wild. 
So we have more, we have higher level things that we want to achieve. We, you know, we, we want to be successful at our jobs. We want to change the world. We want to improve people's lives. You know, we want to have great relationships, things like that. Um, but the, the, the desire, the, the urge, the primitive urge or impulse, you know, to act quickly, to stay in the status quo, um, those are all things that are not, not copacetic with our higher level goals and values. So that's why, you know, that's why we need to always try, try to be thinking at a, at a different level, one, one step beyond. We need to, need to catch ourselves when we have some of these cognitive biases that might be interrupting, you know, our decision-making, um, you know, talked about fear and that's a, um, a remnant of what's called the negativity bias. Negative thoughts, studies have shown, negative thoughts have a, activate the brain at a much higher level than positive thoughts do. So we get more brain electricity going when we have negative thoughts. And it affects us both when, when we are thinking about things in the past and thinking about things in the future, which is what fear is, right? So we've we have a tendency to focus on the negative. But if you, like most people, want to have a positive outlook, you know, and want to want to feel good and want, you know, want to be more likable, then if you're always <laughs> focusing on the negative, then that's that's not in line with your values and your goals. So um, so yeah, it, and when I talked about it uh affecting how we review the past, think about when you do something that's embarrassing, okay, and how it's so hard for your brain to let go of that, <laughs> and you remember it years from now, you might not remember good things that have happened to you, but you remember that time you did that really stupid thing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you you sent you you sent a snarky email back to somebody, and you accidentally hit reply all, and. You know, it was about your boss and your boss was on the reply all or something like that. You know, you you do something that you regret. Oh, it's so hard to let go of those. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah. That's your lizard brain that's keeping you from letting go of it because something bad happened. Well, it doesn't want that happening to you again. That's a threat to you. So it locks on. It keeps a database of all the negative things that have happened to you <laughs> so that it, they, it can come quickly to your mind. So that's why it's easier to remember the negative things. I remember I, 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 one of the companies that I worked with in my corporate career, I was a uh, project manager over an IT team. And we, one, one of the programmers, there was a bug that got into a program and it caused a major problem for, for our client. It was a small, very small bug. We had good QA, but it just happens. You know, you, you can't, can't get everything perfect. So it caused a major problem. Now, when I worked for that company, I had, you know, thousands and thousands of programs and changes and things that went perfectly without a hitch. We had a lot of success. I had a lot of clients that never had any issues. But do I remember those? Eh, not so much. I remember this one time that we had this big screw up and it was under, under my watch, you know, that this happened. That's my lizard brain wanting to me to dwell on and, and hold on to the negative things that happen. So, right, right. yeah. So one way, so I use the term, this is another term I made up, uh, but I love it. I, I, one of my programs is, is titled this confront the lizard. 
confront the lizard. So I use the term lizard to kind of, it's a metaphor for the lizard brain, but I, I like the fact that you can kind of picture this little reptile inside your head in your brain. That's, that's uh, messing with your decision-making abilities and confront the lizard means that, um, that we try to recognize these, uh, when these uh, influences that come from the, at the subconscious level are impacting us. So for example, if you're, you've got a, something negative that you did that happened to you or whatever in, in the past and it keeps coming back to you, well, you need to confront the lizard and close it out. So there's something called a completion process where you, it, if you have this situation that you're having trouble letting go of, it was negative, either something you did or something somebody did to you. First, you write it down because writing it helps to solidify it in your mind. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, it helps you to remember it and you don't, I mean, you're not trying to hang on to this negative thing more, but you're trying to release know, it. Yeah. And right. Um, and, and, and you want to remember this process. So then you think about, okay, what did I learn from this? You know, what were the lessons learned? What did I get out of this? Because every mistake we make, we can get, we can learn from. All right. Then you think, is it, uh, is there any, are there any loose ends that need to be closed? Uh, For example, do I need to apologize to somebody for what happened? Or do I feel somebody needs to apologize to me? So maybe we can have that conversation. Um, once you have done that, once you've closed the loose ends, then you mark it as complete. So where you've written it down, you put a line through it and you write down complete. And now you know that you've got that taken care of. There's nothing else you can learn from that negative situation because you've already gone through this process and you have learned from it, but you're done with it. You know, you're through with it. So now you're not going to be able to totally forget that thing, that what it, that incident, that situation, because your lizard won't let you forget it. But when it comes to mind, you can say, Hey, I already completed that. It's done. I've closed that out and you can move on and it won't, it won't obsess you and take so many of your resources, your, your, (laughs) you know, your mental resources, your attention, your time, your energy. Yeah. Because our, our negative thoughts have such a weight on us psychologically. And I like how you talked about capturing it on paper you know, mm-hmm. journaling it, documenting it. And, um, I don't know, I don't know if you listen to Tim Ferriss's podcast or read any of his books, but, oh, uh, yeah. he talked, he talks about the lizard brain or the, or the monkey mind and, right. and, you know, in a similar context and he, yeah. And, and he's like, sometimes you just have to be okay here. This is my fear and expose the fear, let it out, you know, in, in written format or audio format, and then just find a way to, release it let it go right um yep. because it's 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 like you know we we live in the confines of our of our own minds and it's a matter of finding ways to alleviate or eliminate those those uh is that part of also the invisible biases you're talking about that yeah, are, that are all within us mhm yep certainly is fear fear and all emotions you know play into that and uh you know i use the term metacognition and being an, an emotional intelligence and being aware and identifying and writing down your, what your emotion is or what your fear is, that's a way to kick it up. That's a way to confront the lizard, kick it up from the lizard brain, emotional reactionary uh, level in your brain and kicking it up to the executive 
part of your brain that's called the, the prefrontal cortex where, where all your consciousness and your high level decision making takes place. So it's kicking it up to there so you can take a more logical, rational uh, approach to it, to what's going on and see, you know, is this helping me? And I always say, you know, the good questions to ask are if you've, if you've got a decision to make and you, especially if you have a, an, a high emotional attachment to this decision or potential outcome from the decision is to ask yourself, is this emotion that's playing into it? Is it helpful? Is it helping me to align it with my goals and values? Now I'm not saying emotion is bad because we are, we're emotional creatures, you know, humans, that's part of who we are. And emotions can be great catalysts for change. But once it comes to problem solving and decision-making, you often need to take that emotion out of it so you can make, you know, and, and put your, your goals and especially your values into it. Use that as the lens for your decision instead of this, uh, you know, this high emotion that you have. Um, so, you know, we, we often, you're, your mother might've told you, you know, when you're, when you're, when you're mad, don't, don't react. Don't do anything when you're mad. Wait five minutes. Yeah. Um, you know, so you can cool off. And I always say, um, you know, sleep on it, especially impactful yeah. decisions, you know, and you've got, oh, you've got this decision that suddenly comes to you and you feel like you need to act. Usually a decision doesn't have to be made right now. You know, the lizard yeah. wants you to make it quickly. Yeah. You no, normally don't have to, and it's better to sleep on it, to let that, to let yourself get back to a, uh, a stable emotional level. So we we have something called an emotional immune system. It's like our, uh, our, our physiological immune system. Um, our brain wants to get to a, uh, a static state or a, uh, a stable emotional state. It doesn't want us getting too high or too low. Right. You know, right. So it, it's, it's safer for us to stay within a range and, and everybody's range is a little bit different, but it wants us to stay at a, at a stable emotional range. So that's why, you know, if, if you think about how, how would winning the lottery affect you? Oh my God. You know, you think about how happy that would make <laughs> yeah. you That would be the best thing ever. Well, studies of people who win the lottery show that a year after they've won it, won the lottery, they're, their happiness, you know, how they report how happy they are isn't much different from how happy they were before they won the lottery. <laughs> so no, it's that emotional totally. immune system that brings them back down. And the same with, um, you know, if you consider, you know, say, say that you're married or you're, you're dating somebody and you have a significant other and you think, oh, if that person leaves me, I would be crushed. You know, I would be so unhappy. My life would be in ruins and I'd, I'd be a mess for, for, you know, years. Well, your emotional immune system. Yeah. It's gonna, it's gonna hurt. You are going to feel bad if that happened, but it's going to get back up to a stable, stable position where you're not going to feel that bad for that long. Where yeah. we often miscalculate, you know, we, we get it right, whether it'll make us feel good or bad, but we miscalculate the intensity and the duration of our emotions. Yeah. No, for sure. That's like the, that term when they're like, you know, when your parents are like, oh, time heals all wounds. And, mm -hmm. you know, you just got to give it the, the necessary time. But again, we don't know how much time, like you're saying. Right, right. And something else. I mean, time is a great way to, um, 
mitigate, you know, that the, the, um, the, the high emotion or the emotional impact when we're making decisions. And another thing, another great way to do this is to collaborate, get somebody else involved, somebody else who doesn't have that high level of emotion that you have in this situation, you know, or this decision that you're going to make, um, or whatever action you are thinking about taking, if you can get somebody else's input that doesn't have that level of emotion, then that's going to help you make a better decision. And here's a great, great example from my corporate career. I had a boss. He, he was a great boss. You know, he was, he was well-liked. He was a good person, but he got in a little trouble once because somebody sent him an email about a project that, and, and this email pushed his buttons. It, you know, it hit him at an emotional level and made him mad. And he sent off an email in reply that was ah, snarky and, and angry and sarcastic. And he got in a little bit of trouble for, for doing that, you know? So what he did, and this was extremely smart of him, <laughs> was he decided whenever there was a situation where he recognized, and this is a confront the lizard thing, recognize yourself when you've got a high emotional attachment to something, yeah. um, he would recognize those situations. He'd write up the email, but wouldn't send it, but he would send it to me first. So, ah. and he'd say, Steve, take a look at this. And I would look at it and I wouldn't have that. I, I wouldn't be tweaked emotionally like he was. And I'd be able to take a, a more, you know, rational or less emotional view of it. And I could look at his email. I could edit it for appropriateness if needed, take the edge off, you know, if, if need be. And, and that worked great. And he never had an issue, you know, with that kind of thing again. So it's, it's very hard for us to recognize our own cognitive biases and the things that are interfering with our thinking and decision-making, but it's easier to see it in other people than in right. ourselves. And that's why teamwork is so important, getting other people involved so you can kind of see how other people may be. Uh, having some irrational biases or preferences or shortcuts, you know, that are, that are taking, taking place in the decision-making process. And also, you know, just for the fact that diversity of thought is important. So, so getting more people involved in the decision gives you more chances to uncover uh, other options that you might've thought not, might not have thought about on your own. Um, and you get other, other viewpoints and other perspectives. So that's the one thing I usually close many of my programs, my speaking programs with is a, a segment on teamwork and how important that is. Even when we think we're the person in the position that needs to make that decision, we're the smartest, we know more about this situation or this domain than anybody else. Even if we think that we need to get other people involved as much as possible especially if those people are going to be impacted by your decision. <laughs> right. Get, right. And at, like, I, I feel that as well. Like I really, for myself, like I can have a high emotional, um, like my emotions definitely play a large impact in my decision-making and, and, and I'm aware of that, but like you're talking about the teamwork and gathering feedback from your team members. That's what I, I've always used. Um, whether that be from my manager or my coworkers, I, I really val value other people's opinions and feedback, even though I might not necessarily agree. I always, I always have learned, um, you know, great, great things from ev everyone's feedback because sure. it helps me, it help it always helps me form, uh, formulate my own decisions and finalize them. 
Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's so important to foster and, uh, a safe and open environment yeah. for your team so that they know that they can contradict maybe what you're thinking and give you a different perspective. And they are not going to pay for that. They're not going to be seen in a negative light because of it, you know, cause that's the only way you're going to get honest feedback is if they know that, Hey, it's okay. If I, you know, come up with a contrarian view or, a, or a, a different opinion than my boss has. Yeah. Cause they're, they're allowing, they're allowing you to uh, open up, uh, you know, amongst the team to do that. Right. Right. And you know, as far as teams go, I, I can't over emphasize or overstate how important trust is and maintaining a high trust environment because we have, this is another negativity bias thing with the lizard brain. We are suspicious. Now suspicion is kind of a funny word because people think oh, I'm not a suspicious person. What are you talking about? But your lizard brain is a suspicious, a suspicious person and it's sneaky and it's working at you on you at the subconscious level and you don't, don't realize it. But whenever we have uncertainty about a person and their intentions or perhaps hidden agendas or motivations, we make an assumption and it could be a positive or negative assumption. For example, you're watching a, your favorite team on TV and the ref makes a bad call against your team and you get all mad. Well, most of us as sports fans make an assumption about that ref. It could be, well, he just made a mistake. You know, you can't get everything right. The game moves fast. Live and let live. Honest mistake. Sports fans don't do that. <laughs> no, not at all. They, no. they'll, they'll blame, they'll lay the blame on the ref. Anyone, right. right? Yeah. yeah. And they're, you know, we feel like, oh, that's the third bad call he's made against our team. You know, he wants, he wants us to lose. What's going Oh, he's probably getting paid by the other team. That's what's going on. So when it comes to making assumptions about somebody and their intentions, we're much more likely to assume the negative than the positive. And so we, we are suspicious. You know, we have this level of suspicion if we have uncertainty at the subconscious level, but we can overcome it, you know, and we have to overcome it because the opposite of suspicion is trust. They're at opposite ends of the same line, which means they can't coexist at the same time. And if you want to have a high trust environment and have good trusting, positive relationships with the people that you work with, or, I mean, this applies to anybody that you have a relationship with. It can be your spouse or your kids or your friends, you know, or your coworkers. If you're going to have a good positive relationship, you need to have a level of trust and you need to overcome suspicion, especially if it's not founded because that's your lizard brain working at you. So yeah, to confront the lizard, you have to stop yourself when you've got a negative assumption that you feel you're making about somebody and you're about to act on it or say something or do something to that person, you got to stop yourself and you take a moment and kick it up to your big brain, your big human prefrontal cortex, the part that makes, you know, the conscious decisions and think, you know, did this person earn my suspicion? Uh, or is this something I'm making an assumption about? And if possible, turn it around. You know, you hear the phrase, somebody, somebody has to earn your trust. Well, what if you yep. said, well, I'm going to start with trust and oh. give them trust until they, un, or unless they do something to earn my suspicion, you know, you, you, you default to trust instead. Now, 
it is a little bit, a little bit risky, you know, and you do have to have, use some caution. I'm not saying, you know, you, you trust your life savings to somebody you don't know or, or something like that. But if you have, if you start with a little more trust than you otherwise would have, then you're going to build trust because trust builds. If you're more trusting, then that person's going to be more trusting of you. And it's a cycle that builds, but distrust and suspicion is a cycle that builds too. So if, as soon as one person knows somebody else is suspicious of them or being distrustful of them, then it, it's a down downhill spiral and it's tough to come back from. Yeah, that that's very, very well, very well said. Okay. Um, we all, we all have, that that suspicion uh bias or suspicion narrative before we're about to meet someone right. and yeah yeah and yeah it's like you're saying it's like the reason we have it is because we're afraid of opening uh opening ourselves up to someone new and and giving them that trust uh, right away um so yeah that that's something that we can all improve on and uh and build awareness on is uh you know always um always try and give people the benefit of the doubt first and and see what happens because it usually ends up being a better conversation and uh, building a, a better way to build a connection uh, off the get-go you got it and and you know also if if you have a history with somebody and they did something which makes you um, you know assume that they're not trustworthy. So they did something to betray your trust in the past. Uh, it is tough to come back from, but if you trust them with maybe something small, so you have heard the term ooch <laughs> for, for making a small, a small test sample, uh, give them, you know, give them your trust in something that, you know, if, if they betrayed it again, it's not going to kill you. You know, it's not going to be a horrible thing, but if they see that you're extending trust to them, then they're more likely to behave in a trustworthy manner and they're more likely to trust you in return. So then you can slowly start to build that trust back up. But somebody has to take the step and break the cycle of distrust and suspicion if you want to get back on, on a good high trust, uh, high trust level. Uh, and it's so important, you know, everybody knows that trust is a positive thing. Yeah. You know, we want to have trust relationships, but I don't think most people realize just how important it is. You know, having high trust, uh, relationships makes everything work better. Companies mm -hmm. make more money when they're, when they have high trust environments, decisions can get made faster. Um, actions can, can, can go quicker. You know, if you think about when you're trying to get something done with somebody that you don't trust, there's a lot of friction involved in that. You know, it's difficult to get things done and, and move quickly. You know, uh, if you think about having to go through a bunch of contracts to get something done as opposed to a handshake, you know, it's much, if you have, you know, higher levels of trust, you can get more done. Um, there's a book by Stephen M. R. Covey. So he's the the son of the famous Stephen Covey that wrote seven habits of highly effective people. And he wrote a book called the speed of trust. And it's, he said his subtitle is the one thing that changes everything. I think, uh, about, think about that. Think how strong of a statement that is the one thing that changes everything. 
not just some things. It changes everything. And it's a great book. And it talks about why trust is so important and why we need to put more emphasis on it. Yeah, we like trust. Trust is number numero uno. Yeah, it's it's uh, very, very top for um, making decisions, finalizing decisions mm-hmm. and, cre- and creating and cultivating, uh, you know, great connections with people. Right, right. And it's, you know, sometimes it is counterintuitive. So, you know, intuition is an interesting thing. And I like to talk about it because it it gets people mad sometimes when, when I talk about it. <laughs> because a lot of people espouse the, uh, the philosophy that, you know, you should always trust your intuition. Intuition is the whisper of the soul, you know. And <laughs> it's... It's like, well, wait a minute. There are a lot of studies show that intuition is not that reliable (laughs) because intuition comes from your subconscious. And, you know, who else is in your subconscious? Your lizard brain. Lizard brain. Yeah. Uh, So so a lot of our intuition comes from some of those those cognitive biases and the things that uh, it's the lizard wanting us to act to act quickly or to be fearful or to to view everybody as a potential threat and have suspicion, you know, that that plays into what becomes our intuition sometimes. But there are other times where our intuition is very valuable. First of all, if you have to make a decision quickly, you'd be glad you get your lizard brains intuition. If you're, uh, if you're driving and somebody cuts you off and <laughs> you have to act really quickly, you know, that's a, uh, you don't have time to actually think about it <laughs> to confront the lizard. So, um, but, here, here's where it works the best is when you have been doing something for a long time, you have experience in a certain domain or, you know, at your job, you've seen a situation over and over again, then that tends to get wired into your subconscious. Now it's like muscle memory. If you play a sport or a game and how you practice thousands and thousands of times, like hitting a tennis ball the right way, you know, thousands and thousands of times, you don't have to think about it anymore because it's, it happens automatic. Well, the same with your job. You develop an intuition about situations based on your experience. So we need to, when we have an intuition, when we feel like we know something, but we're not really sure why we know it, we need to think about, kick it up to the big brain, confront the lizard and say, okay, let's see, do I, am I feeling this because I've got experience in this area? Or could it be I'm feeling this because it's, it's the, it's the negativity bias coming into play, or I have a high emotional attachment to it, or I'm afraid, you know, what's going on here. And if that's the case, then what you have to do is you have to use the lens of your values. You have to think, okay, is this, this impulse that I have, is this going to make me make a decision that aligns with my values and my goals, you know, or, and, and if not, well, then maybe that, maybe that intuition, you know, wasn't really working on your behalf <laughs> in that, you know, in that particular instance. So I always like to tell people, identify what your values are. It's just like, you know, writing down your fears or writing down your emotions. Identify what your values are. What are the things that are important to you? You know, and by values, I mean the, the, the things that you want to be, uh, you want people to think of you um, when they think of this. You know, they, it, it, or you can think of somebody that you admire and respect. What is it about that person that you admire and respect? Is it uh, because they have a high level of integrity? Do you value that? They're honest. 
Is, is that one of your values? Honesty, uh, hardworking, you know, um, creativity, you know, they're not afraid to think outside the box. You know, what, what are some of the things that you value? And does this intuition that you have, does that align with your value? If it's a negative intuition, you know, like a suspicion, a lot of times that's not in line with our values. So I always try to try to talk about values-based decision-making and using your values as your lens through which to view your decisions and to make your decisions. Wow. That, yeah, that, that's incredible. And, um, uh, final question for you there, Steve, uh, sure. do you, do you feel multitasking is killing our ability to make great decisions and impactful decisions? Ah, multitasking. Yes. That's one of my favorite things to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I don't, I don't feel, I wouldn't put it that way that it's killing our ability to make decisions, but I think that multitasking itself is usually a bad decision because uh, it's a myth actually. And there's the guy named, uh, Dave Crenshaw who wrote a book called the myth of multitasking. And, and it's a great book and, and he has, he has a blog. I think he's got a podcast. He has some videos out there about multitasking and it's not, if you've got more than one thing that requires conscious thought. So yeah, you can do two, you can listen to the radio and drive at the same time because really most, most driving once you've been doing it for a while isn't at your subconscious level because it, because you've done it so much, it's then wired into your subconscious. So you can listen to the radio and, and drive at the same time, or you can, you know, do something that doesn't take much mental energy while you're watching TV or something like that. But for two things that do take your conscious attention, trying to multitask isn't even possible. It's an illusion. So we feel like we're doing it, but we're not really. It's what we're really doing is switch tasking. We are switching back and forth between the two or more things that we're trying to do. We feel like we're doing more than one at the, at, at the same time. But no, we're not. We're just mentally switching back and forth between them. What does that do? It means we don't do either task as well, and they're both going to take longer than if we did them both individually. Wow. So, yeah, so we have to, you know, when we're thinking about multitasking, we need to block out time for each individual thing, and we will be more efficient, and we'll do a better job of those than if we tried to do them at the same time. Yeah, yeah. I was uh, doing some research on multitasking a while ago, because when when looking at job applications and stuff like that, they all they all ask for great multitaskers, but at the same time, yeah. where people can't multitask. And and I know for myself, if I'm trying to do more than one thing, I just I don't get done what I need to get done. And um like when I just focus on one thing and take it as far as I can to completion, you might not be able to complete everything till finish because there might be some more information that you need or Right. But um, my boss always tells me, take take that one project or that one task as far as possible and then move on to the next one. Because otherwise, it just causes overwhelm and it'll, yeah, it, it sets you back. And it also, I also read that, like you're saying, the switch task, each time we switch a task and then we go back to the original task, takes 15 to 20 minutes to regain focus back mm -hmm. to the original task. And to me, that's, that's a lot of time yeah. to, to, to take to refocus again. Absolutely. Yeah. And I've, I've, I've seen that figure before as well. And I think about, you know, when I'm working, so I work, I work at home because I'm, I'm self-employed and I'm a, a solopreneur. Um, and when I get 
you know, I try to tell my family to, you know, during the day, you know, unless I come until I come up for lunch, try not to interrupt me unless you really need to, you know, if it's important, yeah. sure, that's fine. But, um, you know, if you interrupt me and I'm in the middle of something, it's going to take me a bunch of time to get my head space back to where I was <laughs> and, oh, yeah. and yeah. And to fully, fully ramp it, ramp it back up in that direction. So, uh, yeah, so that's, yeah, that's a common myth. And I bet, um, well, you can tell me if, if you see, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of resumes themselves that say that there are people, you know, said so they say I'm a great multitasker on there. Well, <laughs> we'll see about that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's, really? uh, that's all the time we got to today, Steve, uh, pleasure, uh, pleasure. You join us today on the mindset podcast, got some amazing, uh, feedback and uh, value from you today. Um, on, you know, but how, how we can make better decisions. Some of the societal, uh, stereotypical biases that we all have in our own personal narratives, which we, you know, which we can change and, you know, it's being aware of that lizard brain that all of us have, but, you know, a matter of just, uh, you know, mitigating that, uh, and minimizing that negative feedback and then, and then documenting, documenting, uh, how we're feeling and, and capturing that on paper as well to, uh, you know, to make better decisions. And then also, you know, teamwork and getting you know that that collaborative nature to help us uh, make those decisions and fostering that environment for for creativity because creativity i feel like is another uh catalyst to great great decision making because you just feel things flow things flow better and you're not um just confined to your own thoughts and biases yeah yeah well thank you i, I appreciate you having me alex and uh, yeah, if anybody wants to learn more they can go to stevehafner.com uh, I've got a, got a weekly newsletter where they can learn more about, uh, thinking, decision-making, cognitive biases and all that good stuff. Uh, and I've got an e ebook they can get for free, seven strategies for making great decisions. So Steve, right that's with two F's. And, uh, which, uh, social media networks are you on or what, or, you know, if you are on social media, what are the top, uh, top ones that you might use for, uh, uh our listeners to connect with you? Yeah, I'm on Facebook. And my, my handle is decision performance on Facebook. Um, you can go to Twitter, Steve Hafner on Twitter, and I'm on LinkedIn as well. So if you do a search for my name, I'm probably going to be the first one to come up. Right on, Steve. We'll uh, appreciate your time today. And uh, I look forward to uh, sharing the audio with you from this interview and, uh, and to share with all your, uh, your audience, your community. Great. Well, thanks, Alex. I appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. Awesome. Right on. You take care, Steve. Okay. You too. Bye-bye. And this episode is brought to you by RadioGuestList.com, the number one free radio guest podcast and talk show guest expert interview booking service on the internet. I hope you enjoyed that special guest series episode brought to you by RadioGuestList.com. If you enjoyed this podcast interview with myself and my guests, and you'd like to give me some feedback, please do so by leaving a short review on Apple Podcasts under Mindcep Podcast. That's M-I-N-D-C-E-P, the Mindcep Podcast. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen to podcasts. And I'll be happy to hear your feedback. And if you'd like to connect with me, you can do so as well on social media or 
on my blog. That's Alexander Muir, A-L-X-A-N-D-E-R, Muir, M as a Mike, U-I-R, dot com. And thank you for listening and see y'all next time.